Martin Luther's second Easter sermon. This is the Martin Luther Sermon Podcast, and this is Luther's second sermon on Matthew chapter 28, preached on Easter Sunday, reading out of his house postals. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more information on the Luther Sermon Podcast or for more Luther sermons, etc., please visit www.hope-aurora.org. This sermon is from Luther's House Postal, reading from a translation published by J.A. Schulze, publisher in Columbus, Ohio in 1884, a text that is in the public domain. Luther begins, We have already learned, my beloved, how and why the resurrection of Christ occurred and what benefits we derive from it. Our gospel exhibits to us this still further. Above all, we notice the important fact that the holy angels are the first messengers who bring the happy tidings that Christ has arisen and that the sepulcher is empty, reminding the women that Christ had foretold all this unto them, though they should, though they could then neither believe it nor understand it. Such a message is to us a plain assurance that the angels, who are pure and holy spirits, do neither despise nor shun us poor sinners, but rather desire to be our friends, since Christ died and rose again in our behalf. If God had desired that we should neither hear of this resurrection nor enjoy it, He would not have sent from heaven the blessed angels, his messengers, to announce to us this great event. But now he sets apart and sends his angels to be unto us the first heralds of the resurrection of his Son. And in this we find an assurance that Christ, as we have seen, arose for us, and also that it is the pleasure of God that we should have full faith in this angelic message and be comforted thereby. This fact, the sending of the angels, is thus of great importance. From it we must conclude the resurrection of Christ as well as his passion took place on our behalf for our especial benefit. Besides, we learn the full meaning of the resurrection of Christ from the language of the angels. They come with a twofold message directed first to the women that they should not fear, but rejoicing that Christ had arisen, and then also containing the command not to conceal this but to go in haste to the disciples with the announcement of the great event. In either import, this message is full of cheer. The first words of the angels were, Fear ye not, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Or, in other words, What strange and foolish people ye are to be astonished and afraid. Christ lives and is arisen from the dead, therefore ye ought to rejoice and not be troubled. We can interpret the language of the message in no other way. When one is told not to fear, he is encouraged and exhorted to be glad, hoping for the best, while he who fears can only anticipate some evil which he seeks to avoid. He who stands in dread of the hangman, of death, of sin, and of the wrath of God, can have no joy, no hope, but only lamentation and sorrow, care and sore distress. This shall no longer be your condition, the angel says, since Christ is risen. Be ye comforted with this resurrection and strengthened against the devil, sin, and death, and hell. If these enemies could still injure us, we, of course, would have to fear them. Therefore, the importance of this first command, Be ye not afraid, which comes not only to those women, but to all baptized and believing Christians who know and believe that Christ is risen indeed. The other portion of this message is seemingly of less import, while really it has the same meaning as the former. When the angel urges the women to go quickly and announce the resurrection of Christ to his disciples, we have in this but another exhortation that they should rejoice and receive blessings from this event. Who indeed are these disciples? Poor sinners. 
who deserted their Lord in time of his greatest misery, especially Peter, who even denied him. Just then they were congregated together in secret for fear of the Jews. They had not the least expectation of Christ's resurrection or that he would shortly establish his kingdom. And even now, when the women come and tell them that they had seen the Lord, when Simon Peter and those who had gone to Emmaus come and tell their story, none of the disciples would credit their report, regarding it as a fable. Yes, they are even weak and slow to believe when the Lord himself appears in their midst, showing them his hands and his feet, which he suffers them to feel and to touch. The great anxiety of the angel to announce the resurrection of Christ to the disciples, who were nearly drowned in unbelief and tormented with an accusing conscience, is a certain indication that the Lord is arisen for the consolation of those who are weak in faith, or perhaps unbelieving, that they, in the end, might seek and find him, in him their help and defense. If we, therefore, discover that we are afflicted with similar weakness, with sin and unbelief, we should not despair, nor suppose that Christ will not accept us, but should remember how, in behalf of such poor, weak, miserable sinners, the angels came from heaven and quickly dispatched the women to tell them that Christ was arisen, that thereby they might be comforted and rejoice. For as we have already heard, the resurrection of Christ brings consolation, joy, and a good conscience, since it banishes sin, death, and the wrath of God from our sight. Thus do the angels of heaven preach concerning the resurrection, that they might console with this message the poor frightened consciences. Surely we ought to be fully satisfied with such tidings. But in addition to this, Christ himself appears to the women and speaks to them as the angels did, greets them in a most friendly manner and tells them not to fear. Thus he instructs us all to improve aright the occasion of his resurrection, to expel all fear, and to rejoice with our whole heart, knowing that we have now no dead and buried Christ who is to be honored at his tomb, as the women here proposed to do when they came to anoint his lifeless body, which could have been of no avail to him nor of any consolation or benefit to themselves, but that we have a living Christ in whom we rejoice and whose victory becomes our own through faith. What now is there in all the world that could frighten a Christian who has Jesus for his Lord? Sin cannot do it, for we know that Christ has paid its debt. Nor can it be death, since Christ has conquered him. Hell is rent asunder, and the devil is a prisoner and in chains. It matters not if the world, as she is wont to do, persecutes the Christians and torments them in every way. This is but a temporal suffering and can readily be endured if we know and believe that Christ arose for us and that now we have a life eternal. Let us therefore well learn and retain in memory the precious tidings of the angel, Fear ye not, but be glad. Praise God and give thanks unto him. Christ is arisen and is no longer in the grave. But this is not the only consoling assurance which we receive. Christ himself makes it still greater and more glorious. He says, Go tell my brethren that they go unto Galilee, and there shall they see me. Or as St. John relates on the, on the occurrence in the 20th chapter, Christ told Mary, Go unto my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and unto your Father, and to my God and to your God. How consoling is this term, brethren, 
which Christ here applies to his disciples. Among men, this appellation is common and means that one whom we call brother is a sharer with us of our heritage or of friendship. But when Christ, the Son of God, calls us brethren, the name becomes most excellent, most glorious, and of inexpressible value. If he calls us brethren, we thereby become also partakers of his heritage, for Christ surely does not make use of the same name merely for appearance's sake, as men often do who address each other as dear brother, while at the same time they are enemies at heart and wish each other ill. When Christ calls us brethren, he really means what the word implies, and declares that he will be our brother, and will regard us and deal with us in every respect as with brethren. How did the apostles merit such an honor? Did they perhaps earn the distinction when they shamefully deserted him, when they denied him and lost all confidence in him, in his promise that he would live again and establish his kingdom? Such conduct would indeed have been a sufficient reason for the Lord to regard them as his enemies and not as brethren. But as already shown, Christ knows them to be sinners and desires poor sinners to enjoy the benefits of his resurrection, else he would surely not have called his disciples brethren, who had by their timid and faithless conduct shown themselves so unworthy of this name. We also, indeed, are not worthy of this name, being such poor sinners. Yet we are permitted to make use of it. Yea, Christ teaches all Christians when they pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven. If we call God in heaven our Father, then it follows that we are Christ's brethren. As he says in this connection, I ascend unto my Father, and unto your Father, and to my God, and to your God. There is this distinction, however. Christ is in himself the real and eternal Son of God. We, on the other hand, obtain this name through Christ, who died for us and arose from the dead, that we, through faith in him, might become children of God. Filia adopti non nati, children by adoption, not by birth, as St. Paul describes the relation. With the name, brethren, which the Lord applies to his disciples, he really pronounces to them the absolution from all their sins, that they might forget them and be no longer troubled on their account. Christ has no sin. If, then, the disciples are his brethren, they must likewise be free from sin, else Christ would have an advantage over them in the heritage and would not really be our brother. But now he says that we are his brethren, from which it follows that we are equal heirs with him. What is the inheritance of Christ? Neither money nor goods nor great power and temporal glory. Experience teaches that many, who are not children of God and not the brethren of Christ, have such earthly possessions. Hence these cannot be the heritage of Christ, which he and his brethren alone possess. With these temporal gifts it is as with sunshine and rain and other earthly blessings. God bestows them equally upon the wicked and the just. The true heritage of Christ is that of which Paul speaks, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We poor mortals are so blinded by sin that of ourselves we know nothing of God, of his being and will, nor of sin and righteousness. 
And even though there is yet a small glimmer of the knowledge of God within us, as St. Paul writes, Romans chapter 1, yet it is evident that this is easily quenched and that we readily fall into error and idolatry. This very first advantage of being an heir with Christ is a correct knowledge of God. As he says, Matthew chapter 11, Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomever the Son will reveal him. This then is the greatest and highest wisdom, compared with which all worldly wisdom is utter foolishness. All human wisdom, though much honored among men, is only of short duration. But this knowledge of God and Christ, and of his grace and mercy toward us, is the true eternal wisdom, yea, the life everlasting, as Christ says, and enables us not only to defend ourselves against men, but also to contend with the devil, and to know and to judge him aright. The other portion of our heritage is that Christ is made unto us righteousness. We not only live in sin, but are conceived and born therein. Through Christ, however, this sin is not accounted unto us. God forgives us and pardons us for the sake of his Son. This is justification. God considers us righteous, though we in ourselves are poor, miserable sinners. The third portion of our heritage is that Christ is made unto us sanctification. This he is unto us, not only by consecrating himself as a sacrifice for us, as John chapter 17 declares, but also by sending us his Holy Spirit, who assures our hearts of the mercy of God and comforts and directs and supports us in all times of sorrow and tribulation, also working in us a new life, resisting sin, and prompting to true obedience toward God. The fourth portion of our heritage is that Christ is made unto us redemption. Let tribulations, sorrows, wants, and persecutions come as they will. If Christ is only with us and defends us, they are harmless. We shall conquer in the end and have redemption from them all, not alone in this world, but also in eternity. We should indeed earnestly long for such a precious, blessed, and eternal heritage and rejoice over it with our whole heart. This hope and privilege we have in Christ, since he calls us brethren. Alas, that we fritter away this joy. We are merrier if someone gives us a hundred dollars than when the Son of God makes us heirs of his kingdom and everlasting heritage. We would indeed have great reason to be satisfied if Christ but permitted us to be his disciples, his servants, his pupils, or if he had called us his friends. For who could wish for a nobler lord or better master? But he does much more than this, and elevates us to the loftiest position he calls us his brethren. Let us therefore never forget the great consolation contained in this everlasting brotherhood, and may we all, and may we in all distress and in the bitter hour of death derive all comfort from it. To this the devil objects. He brings it about that the Pope and all the false delusive teachers say naught of this brotherhood and make for themselves in the devil's name other associations where the good works, so-called, of saints, of monks, and of priests are distributed as a heritage. But men deserve such delusion. If they will not rejoice and be comforted in the brotherhood of Christ, they fully deserve to go astray into other impious, idolatrous, false, and worthless brotherhoods into which they place their confidence and trust. Let us therefore be grateful for the true doctrine and cordially receive it. Let us make good use of the resurrection of Christ 
coming unto him as to our brother, in whom we have all confidence, fully believing that his life is the guarantee of our salvation and our defense from all wrath to come. If we were firm in this belief, no misfortune could disturb us. For amid all suffering which may fall to our lot, we know that Christ liveth, and that we shall live with him. Why should the fact of our earthly sufferings distress us, when we are sure of eternal happiness in Christ? Or why should we entertain enmity toward those who abuse us? We ought rather to pity them, since by their hatred and envy toward us they clearly show that they are not of this brotherhood and can have no part in the eternal inheritance. What good will their earthly possessions do them, their influence, their money, their goods and renown, which they only misuse unto sin and everlasting condemnation? If, therefore, we dearly love this brotherhood in Christ, we would not be so eager after temporal things, but would care more for the eternal heritage which is secured to us in this brotherhood. St. Paul speaks very pertainingly of this when dwelling upon the resurrection of Christ. He says, Colossians 3, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. If we wish, in truth, to lay claim to this brotherhood and to boast that we are children of God, we must also strive to do the Father's will and to be obedient children. We must, as St. Paul says, mortify our members which are upon earth. That is, we must restrain our evil desires and avoid evil deeds and put on, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another, etc. We see, then, why sanctification was mentioned as a part of the heritage in Christ. It must surely follow, in faith and in life, as St. Paul also explains, 1 Corinthians 5. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And again, Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. These words may seem strange, but they entirely correspond with the words of St. Paul, which we have considered, that Christ was made unto us righteousness and sanctification. If we believe that Christ paid for our sins, we have, through such faith, forgiveness of our sins, and are justified, or as St. Paul calls it, freed from the old leaven. Nevertheless, our flesh and blood is not totally mortified, but full of the old leaven and evil lusts. These we ought to purge out and mortify, cherishing them no more, but strive after sanctification. To this end, Christ gives us his Holy Spirit, that we may resist sin and do the will of God. From this you observe, my beloved, what effects the resurrection of Christ should have in us, namely, the banishing of our fear, the recognition of Christ as our brother, and the joyful acceptance of the heritage which he has prepared for us. We ought also so to conduct ourselves that we may not, as undutiful children, lose this inheritance through our disobedience. In this manner, we will rightly enjoy the glorious results of the resurrection and properly celebrate Easter. Where this is not done, 
where people remain in sin and disobedience or are too timid to lay hold upon this consolation in their woes and tribulations, there surely this resurrection and glorious heritage will be of no avail. May God grant us his Holy Spirit through Christ Jesus that our hearts may be cheered by this resurrection, that our faith and confidence and hope therein may increase from day to day, and that through it we may finally be saved. Amen. You have listened to Martin Luther's second sermon for Easter Sunday. It was recorded in his house, Postles, uh, published and preached on the text, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more Luther sermons or for more information about the Luther Sermon Podcast, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. And may God grant us all a blessed Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.